We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicola Smith, who writes for the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And David Green, formerly of the News Lens, who's now doing exactly what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Uh, good evening, Gavin. And tonight we'll be discussing a pending DPP by-election as the party seeks a new leader, questions over when the presidential and legislative elections will be held, delays in the decommissioning of a nuclear reactor, stranded Chinese asylum seekers and a rather expensive police investigation into the theft of a bottle of yoghurt. But we'll begin with Premier William Lai this week mapping out a blueprint for making Taiwan bilingual by the year 2030 in a bid to, in his words, enhance the country's international competitiveness. Lai says that he believes English education is the most important task of the policy and he has instructed the Ministry of Education to amend relevant laws and regulations and to submit draft amendments to those laws and regulations within the next three months. Lai also said this week that civil servants need to improve their English proficiency and that heads and deputy heads of government agencies should strengthen their English communication skills so they can issue important press releases. The plan's initial focus is on students below senior high school level age, though, receiving English language instruction, and that will be exclusively in English from the ages of between 8 and 12. Now, the Deputy Education Minister, Fan Shun Lu, says the government is aiming to train 2,000 teachers within the next four years to meet the demand for more English teacher education. Now, according to Fan, some 18 colleges that specialise in education will be providing a series of courses offering training and accreditation of teachers in English language instruction, and the number of teachers able to offer instruction in English is expected to grow to 3,000 in eight years and to 5,000 by 2030. Now, the plan could also see the easing of restrictions on teaching English in kindergartens and schools at all levels will be encouraged to offer academic subjects taught in English. So there you go, David, English teaching, English bi bilingual Taiwan. Is it going to happen? Um, well, what do you mean by bilingual Taiwan? That was a question that I asked uh, myself when I saw this date of 2030. Good, I'm asking you now. There you yeah, go. You no, can well, give us your I answer. mean, if you if you mean d is everyone in Taiwan suddenly going to be bilingual, then I think the answer is is no. But uh, the overarching uh, objective of this policy is to improve Taiwan's international competitiveness, uh, which I think is, is broadly a good thing. And I've already heard from some people involved. Um, in uh, the the efforts to to do that, and specifically by improving Taiwan's English language capability, who are encouraged by this policy. Um, if you, I think the, the key question really is to, is to get into the detail of how this is going to be done. Where is the talent going to come from to train all of these extra English teachers, and how much money is going to be put behind this uh, this policy to achieve that? Um, it also strikes me that there are kind of two. Um, two time tracks for this. One is short term to get those uh, civil servants in place, specifically the ones that are involved in assisting Taiwanese businesses going overseas or assisting overseas businesses or entrepreneurs coming into Taiwan. Uh, and that would be uh, a fast track. And then there is the, the slower uh, getting the whole workforce uh, up to speed in English, which is going to take more time um, and is going to involve a kind of rejigging of the curriculum. And you would hope would take input from Taiwan's extensive and experienced uh, English language teaching community. Um, you know, how much money is going to be put behind it? What else can we do to incentivize uh, English language teachers, to, uh, trainers to come here? Uh, it's been suggested that you could partner or, or pair this package with some money, but also perhaps a, a fast track to citizenship or 
Chinese language learning. That there should be a package to get these people in here and 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 teaching because it's it's so far we just don't know the details of that as far as as far as I know. Um, I don't know if I've got much to add to that. It's a very comprehensive answer, um, but I mean I. I don't see any downsides to this policy. Um, I only see upsides to more people knowing English. And I think it's not just about investment and business. It's also about tourism because, you know, certainly speaking as someone who doesn't speak Chinese, which, um, you know, I, I choose to live here so I should speak more Chinese. But for for visitors who come here, you do notice how little English is spoken even in the tourism industry. And, and you know, Taiwan has had problems over the past couple of years because of its reliance on Chinese tourists. So I think, you know, it'd be a huge advantage to them um, in terms of attracting more overseas visitors from around Asia, where English is, is more widely spoken, and from, from Europe as well, because, you know, Taiwan's obviously putting out these advertising campaigns around the world saying, come to Taiwan, but um, there definitely needs to be more English spoken, and even just signs in English. I mean, you know, we've been to a lot of tourist um, sites here where everything is 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 only in Chinese, and, and um, that's probably going to put some tourists off um the the only thing i would say about um uh the teaching of it is that i hope that in the rush to achieve these ambitious goals that they don't people don't get too lax about vetting of english teachers you know i i have heard anecdotally that um a lot of people are accepted to speak to teach english just because they are western and the, that's their native language. And I, I think you really have to aim above that, not only for the safety of kids who are, who are learning the English, but also for quality standards as well. Well, David, I mean, one of the things about this is apparently 70% of all government websites will have to be in English as part of this scheme. And I love the bit about civil servants should improve their English proficiency and the heads and deputy heads of government agencies should strengthen their English communication skills. Well, you've dealt with government agencies here like I have. <laughs> yes. Uh, snigger, it, snigger. It, it's very necessary. Um, I mean, one of the, the, the things that I took away from, from hearing this is, is great news for the translation community uh, here. There's going to be a lot of work um, for them. And there is a lot about putting documents into English, which you know, is a short-term measure that probably needs to be done. But per- personally, I've never actually come across a document that I've needed to interact with, you know, on a, on a non-professional level that hasn't already really been in English or at least been facilitated for me in, in English such that I could understand it. Um, so I think really this is about, on a professional level, government-to-government, business-to-business, uh, upgrading the standard of, 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 of English in, in that environment. I just want to come back quickly to the, you know, the idea of, of uh, kids learning English. I, I do think this is important because Taiwanese kids already do study English a lot. Um, the problem is that they don't really have that much opportunity to practice after they exit what is a very grueling and stolid educational experience. Um, so having this national target will hopefully uh, eventually arrive, uh, give rise to opportunities for them and, and at least a pathway for them to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to have an opportunity to, to use this. Uh, even if I stay in Taiwan and don't get a job with an international company or go overseas to study or work. And I think that that could be quite important if it's handled in the right way. But do you think possibly civil servants are looking at this and going, my God, I've got to learn English? So be it, you know. <laughs> Possibly, but you know, it can only be career enhancing. So, you know, and also in in, in terms of helping um, 
Taiwan to sell its story abroad. I mean, it can only be a good thing, you know, and that's already started. You, you have President Tsai, she tweets in English, the foreign ministers generally, they speak excellent English. Um, but, you know, if you can have more people kind of having an outward facing role as well and kind of interacting with, with the foreign media and also, you know, not, not only in Taiwan, but also abroad, then I think that'd be great. But of course, they ran into trouble last year with the tweets from the Tourism Bureau, which weren't quite in English, if I recall rightly. Um, I mean, that was a, a PR disaster for Taiwan on on many levels. Um, and as I understand it, they are taking measures to kind of rectify that. Um, I think part of that was also not directly the responsibility of or, or the tourism agency itself. It was a PR agency that had been hired. Um, I mean, it's possibly a bit murky as to the details there, but... Yeah, uh, as Nicholas said, essentially this all works towards the goal of uh, broadcasting Taiwan's story abroad more positively and, and we can't really um, say anything other than that that's a good thing for the country. Moving on and fallout from the November 24th election is continuing with the DPP this week announcing that the party will hold a by-election for a new chairperson on January the 6th. Of course, the ballot comes after President Tsai Ing-wen stepped down from the post in the wake of the party's poor performance in those elections. Now, registration for the by-election will take place between December the 10th and the 14th and the party's central executive committee will then screen the candidates' qualifications by December the 19th and those selected to compete for party chair will then be expected to make a live televised presentation of their policies on December the 30th. Now, the DPP says that the results of the election will be announced on January the 9th. Now, several people are being tipped to run for the post, including Legislative Speaker Su Jia Chun, Minister of Culture Zhang Li Jun, outgoing Taijong Mayor Lin Jialong and Chen Chi Mai, who, of course, lost his bid for Kaohsiung Mayor. Meanwhile, President Tsai this week also called for self-reflection and unity within the DPP, saying that the party needs to regain public trust following its defeat in the local elections and speaking to reporters during a press conference which was held in a hallway at the presidential building as all the local newspapers this Friday seem to pick up on and find quite interesting. Me, I couldn't quite get it. A press conference in a hallway. Anyway, she said in the hallway that she believes a consensus has now emerged within the DPP to give priority to serious soul-searching and to engage in dialogue with members of the public in an effort to regain their support as the party moves into the next phase. Now, Tsai Ing-wen also dismissed speculation that Premier William Lai will step down next month. But those statements, though, come amid reports the DPP's losses in the elections have resulted in infighting among the party's factions over who should now lead the party and as to whether or not there should be a major cabinet reshuffle so david new party leader and reflection soul searching and let's talk to the public um yes which is also what i've been hearing from from dpp legislators uh, i mean you know this this election is crucially an opportunity for the dpp to to show the public that it has listened to the election result and is uh responding um by reforming its policy making uh, and potentially it's it's party culture as well um it, it's also a, a potentially an opportunity for the party to split um and, and fracture and and and, and for the things the kind of things that saying when has been coming out and saying that she's uh that are not going to happen and that she's very desperate to avoid um and it remains to be seen what happens in the next uh the next few weeks or the next couple of weeks as we run up to to the candidates being selected and, and that televised debate but wh- whoever runs i think you'll expect them to to be pushing a message um that they've listened to voters and and actually 
also perhaps saying that they were going to improve mechanisms uh, for the executive branch to communicate with the legislators and with the party grassroots, because I think that that, that was a key uh, or failing that was at least that DPP legislators think there was there was not enough communication between the, the two branches and the legislative UN lost its ability to check and balance the executive branch. Uh, and so you, you might hear people, uh, the candidates talking about that. As to exactly who it's going to be, you didn't mention uh, uh, the Taoyuan mayor. Oh, he said um, no already. He said no. As he said I'm, no. I'm too busy, he said. I thought he said he was too busy to, 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 for, to be acting chair. Too busy to run. Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. He's got a city to run, anyway. Well, I mean, there is no? that. Yeah. That don't quite a lot of those candidates. Uh, well, well, actually, well, uh, amongst the other candidates, many of them lost mayoral races. So that's probably why the Taoyuan mayor is going. Oh, do I really want that job? You know, I've got a nice job here. You know, do I really want to put my job in him in danger? I mean, I might. He might not be thinking that, but that's where it comes over as biding his time. Then perhaps. <clears throat> Yeah, self-preservation is a good thing. Um, I I think, uh, well, I mean, I think that uh, the party could go one of two ways in the next few weeks. They could either dissolve into infighting or they could actually do some reflection, not get too distracted by this leadership race because, you know, does it really matter so much who's who's at, at the very head? I mean, it's, it's they kind of need group leadership, don't they, of, of any political party. So, you know, what does... What does President Tsai mean by reflection? I mean, are they are they actually going to go away and spend a few days just thinking about what's happened, planning what to do next, and coming back to the electorate and saying, "Okay, you've spoken to us, and this is what we're going to do about it," or are they just going to kind of kick that into the long grass and say, "Yes, we're reflecting, but we're not really going to tell you how we're reflecting"? Um, and I think that's something that they need to be very decisive about over the next few weeks to show that. Yes, they've taken an absolute drubbing, but that's not completely unusual in you know, kind of midterm elections, is it? Um, they still have a chance to bring it back for for uh, the next national election, so um, it's kind of over to them now, really. Right, I mean, but she had a press conference in a hallway at the presidential building, David, which, of course, is she a person of the people now? Because uh, she had it in a hallway, not the big meeting room. Well, that's obviously... Um the message that sort of being put across there is that she's going to be more available. Obviously, she was very detached um, in the first two years of the term, um, and so there's obviously already an effort underway to present her as as uh, more open to communicating with both the public, the media, and her own party. Right. Of course, going back to the chairmanship race. Of course, traditionally in Taiwan, the chairperson of the party runs for president. Now, do you think it could be a president? Ah, president rather that the chairperson of the party doesn't run for president. Because, of course, this is what makes it difficult when the parties pick their chair people. Because they're always thinking, can this person run for president? Instead of going, OK, this bloke will run the party or this woman will run the party as chairperson and they won't have to worry about running for president. It's a tough question, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, present size is already in question about whether she'd be able to run again or not. So maybe she's hedging her bets a little bit. Um, or maybe the party's hedging its bets a bit and saying, well, you know, we don't want to uh, want everything to depend on her. She, I mean, she's always come across as a kind of slightly reluctant president. You know, that's that's always been my impression of her that... Um, that she's she's kind of, she's not comfortable with the with being in the public eye. She, you know, as we've said already, that she she doesn't really like to engage so much with the media or um, just publicly. So who knows? She she might be kind of quietly trying to step away. I, I I'm not sure about that. I mean, I I, I think 
her prerogative is to keep her potential closest challengers to her, Lai Qingde and, and Chen Ju, uh, close to her, so that if the ship goes down, it all goes down together. It seems to be what she's trying to do at the moment. Um, and it, I, think, I know Premier Lai said he's not he's not going to stand as as chairman for chairman either. Um, so you know the question is then, whoever it is, do they have the really the power or the support to, to mount a challenge to be presidential candidate in 2020? And, and, and it looks a bit like the answer to that would be no, um, which is a win for Tsai. Yeah, where we're sitting now, it's definitely a big no. Capital letters no. N-O, just in case you were learning English. Anyway, just in case you can't get enough of elections, the Central Election Commission this week, well, it said it will make a final decision in June of next year as to whether the next presidential and legislative elections will be held separately or on the same day. Now, the statement comes as lawmakers continue to debate the Commission's operating procedures after, of course, the snafus on election day on November the 24th. Now, if the two elections are held separately, the legislative elections... Could take place in November of next year, while the presidential election could be held in March of 2020. And if the two elections are held together, election day will be sometime in January of 2020. Now, the legislative and presidential elections were first held together in 2012 in an effort to make the process more efficient and also, of course, to prevent the waste of money and manpower. Now, the KMT on Wednesday of this week said it plans to finalise its candidate for the 2020 presidential election by May or June of next year on expectations that the presidential ballot could be held in January of 2020 and not in March of that year. So, David, do you think these elections should be held the same day or separately? Um, you know, my, my understanding of the problems with the 91 elections was because of the referendums being held at the same time. So it isn't really the question as to whether you have... Th- presuming that there's going to be another set of referendums at this election time as well, and there are already... Uh, plenty that are showing up as potentially going to be put forward so the question is is not the question are are we then going to risk having three elections on on one day uh, and the potential chaos that that would cause or are we going to split the elections up and put the referendums on one of the days alongside one of the other elections um and that would seem to me to make more sense certainly not having all of the elections on the same day seems to make sense and they've already said they're going to redesign the referendum ballot papers uh and the referendum voting process and address the law uh the referendum law in terms of looking at whether or not those um all those elections should be held at the same time um otherwise uh you know if you're announcing in june which is when they've said they're gonna the central election commission has said it's going to make this decision and then the date for the legislative elections is november that doesn't leave much time for uh uh, the parties to get their 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 campaigns you know on the road and, and and in place so You'd hope they'd make this decision earlier. Um, you know, otherwise, we've already had elections for presidential and, and MP elections on the same day in 2016. And without the referendums, there wasn't that much of a problem. So, you know, could we just do that again? I don't see why not. Yeah, well, I think keep the referendum separate, but put everything else on the same day because elections are just so incredibly disruptive. Um, and it, it just means no business is done in Parliament and the government's not really doing anything. I mean, last year, legislators were telling me that the, the gay marriage proposal would not go through uh, until the current, um, no, or until the November 
local elections. And that was a year before the local elections. Um, you know, legislators were saying that to me because the government didn't want to take the risk. And, and so, you know, we'll see how that, that didn't exactly work out for them. But um, that's the kind of thing that happens. If, if you have all these staggered elections, then just nothing gets done because, because politicians are so focused on getting re-elected that they don't want to take risks. Um, and it's just a bit annoying for the voters as well, I think, to have too many campaigns um, you know, too many vans going around the streets with like blaring loudspeakers and just endless sloganing, sloganeering. So, uh, yeah, same day. That's where my vote is. And seeing as I have to work on these election days, so do you two people. Same day is better. Otherwise, you've got to work yeah. for two days. Why should I give up two Saturdays? Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and a deadline for the decommissioning of the first reactor at the first nuclear power plant in New Taipei has not been met due to questions over what to do with, well, what to do with the nuclear waste. The Jingshan power plant began commercial operations in 1978 and under its 40-year operating licence, the reactor was set to be decommissioned starting this Wednesday. Now the plant's second reactor is scheduled for decommissioning on July the 15th of next year. But the plan to decommission the two reactors... Well, it included the construction of an outdoor storage yard at the plant site for the dry storage of the spent nuclear fuel, and that facility was built in 2013. However, it has yet to pass a new Taipei city government inspection, which it needs to obtain an operating permit, leaving the decommissioning process basically in limbo. And new Taipei Mayor Eric Ju is also voicing concern that he doesn't want the spent nuclear fuel rods or the nuclear waste anywhere near his city. Now, Taipower says it believes that it's safe to move the fuel rods to dry storage facilities rather than leave them in place, which of course runs contrary to what the new Taipei city mayor said. So there you go, they had a referendum, let's all continue to use nuclear power and they can't decommission the reactor from a nuclear power plant because they've got nowhere to put the nuclear waste. Um, yeah, it's chaos, isn't it? Um, I mean, and this, this follows a number of flip-flops on within energy policy by the DPP. Uh, including on whether to restart the nuclear plants last year. Um, you know, I don't think anything has fundamentally changed. They've said they're going to come out and with a new energy policy in two months. If I was industry, my question would be, hang on a minute, you know, just about got everybody on board with, with the program after a lot of um, pulling teeth and, and oh, sorry, te- teething problems with, with the energy policy and the commitment to renewables. Um, whether or not they do need to show that they've listened to this referendum so i expect this new energy policy to be some kind of of fudge um and potentially uh involving the delay of the decommissioning uh of the third nuclear power plant mayan shan i think um the third one yeah yeah which they have uh, requested a delay in, in the decommissioning of that plant bringing the other power plant back online uh, the first one, I think, um, w- was simply because it had finished scheduled maintenance. Um, and as the one in New Taipei City, sure, that somebody has to answer for that. that that's ridiculous that they built a facility in 2013 and nobody inspected it. Um, it. You know, there's got to be some shenanigans going on there as to why that didn't happen. Uh, probably to do with whoever was in power not wanting to be seen to, to sign off on this uh, during their tenure, um, but uh, allegedly, or, or you know, we can look into that. Um, it's it, it's not clear. 
um, you know, from the DPP's perspective, whatever this new energy policy is, it has to be relatively consistent with what they've said before, while at the same time giving just enough ground to show that they have listened to the electorate at, at the referendum ballot box. Because they did listen to the electorate, because on Thursday this week, the cabinet said we've abolished the bit, the article, whatever it was, number I can't remember, in the government energy policy, and they no longer plan to make Taiwan a nuclear power-free island by 2025. That's not what they said. <laughs> they said, I mean, I understand it, they've removed it from the law, because that's what the law says they have to do, because that was the question in the referendum. But what they've said is that their energy policy remains the same. It's just not on the statute books. So, Nicola, nuclear power plants, but of course nu- nowhere to put the nuclear waste. That's really well, logical, yeah? It sounds like they didn't really have a great plan together, <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, it's not like they didn't know it was going to happen. So, I, I, I mean, I, my knowledge of nuclear plants is not amazing, but does this basically, have I got this right, this basically means that they're keeping the nuclear rods in place, but it's not going to produce any power. It's just going to be an expensive operation to, to keep those nuclear rods in place. Basically, they've got nowhere to put them, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that just doesn't seem very uh, logical or very wise, you of taxpayers' money, but you know, just on the the energy policy, uh, maybe this is something. Maybe this is one of the things that Tsai and her government have to go and reflect on because the public did come out and and say they want. They've obviously kind of weighed up the risks and decided that they'd rather take the risk of an earthquake near a nuclear power plant than the risk of being their energy supplies being cut off by, say, China, hypothetically, or you know, anyone else, or the public just don't yet think that renewable energy is feasible enough to meet the the island's um, uh, energy demands. So I think that the government does have to take note of that and not just plough ahead regardless because, you know, look just what happens in the elections. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think that they do have and are being incentivised or encouraged um, by civil society groups and and other stakeholders to communicate energy policy more. I think there was a survey this week um, asking uh, Taiwanese voters how much uh, what proportion of power they think is generated by nuclear and I think they came back and said 42% and the answer is sort of 8 or 9%. So there was a mass, there's a massive amount of confusion um, amongst the electorate as to what Taiwan's current energy makeup is and even what the energy policy is. If you look at the details of that survey, uh, if you're interested in this, I encourage you. you think it's the Risk Society of Taiwan did the survey? I think it was 44% of respondents said they believe that Taiwan generates most of its power from nuclear energy. Right, which is obviously false. So, you know, if you, if you believe that and then uh, somebody asked you whether we should take that all offline by 2025, you, you know, sensibly you'd say, well, no, we'll have no power. So, you know, this speaks to just a lack of communication on behalf of the government in terms of engaging the public with what its energy policy is. Um, and so whatever this new policy is, it should be followed up with some educational drives to, to make sure the public understand it. It should obviously be covered up with drives to explain how you dispose of nuclear waste, of <laughs> course, you know. Well, I mean, aren't there also, there's also talk of having local referendums, uh, as to, and, which I just I find laughable because uh, we could ask uh, the three of us in here, would you vote in a local referendum to have uh, nuclear waste stored near your home? Well, obviously. I've got a spare room, actually, yeah. Right, exactly. So, I mean, maybe if the question was, and, you know, 
plus 20,000 NT compensation, you might vote differently. But, you know, it's, you can't put matters like that to a, to a local referendum. I don't think you just have to make a decision uh, on a national level. I think we should also just calm down on the referendums as well. I mean, obviously, I'm not a big fan of referendums being British, but like... We don't like, talk about them on this exactly, show because of... <laughs> no, we don't. Brexit. Okay, moving on, moving on. Um, but, you know, issues of major, like, grand strategy aren't really... that's why we have elections as well you kind of to some extent you've got to trust the government that that you vote for even if you don't necessarily get the party you want I I think too many referendums is just counterproductive and two Chinese nationals who apply for political asylum here in Taiwan during a transit stop in September will they remain at Taoyuan International Airport where as we record this show they've now been for about 72 or 73 days now the Mainland Affairs Council says that Yen Ke Fan and Liu Xing Lian have applied for short term entry permits into Taiwan to seek asylum here on the grounds of political persecution in China however the two men have been unable to actually enter the island from the airport because, well, they haven't been able to provide any evidence to support their claims of political persecution. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has now been asked to check whether the two Chinese nationals have made previous requests for asylum in a third country. Now, both Yen and Liu arrived at the airport on September the 27th on a flight from Thailand. Now, they were scheduled to fly on to Beijing, but did not get on the outbound flight. Now, both of the men apparently hold refugee certificates issued by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So, Nicola, there we go. We've got a DPP government that touts human rights at every opportunity. Mm. There's two guys sitting in an airport unable to do anything except eat airport food. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean... um I know this is a really serious issue, but first of all, can you imagine a worse airport to be stuck in? I mean, all it is is designer handbags and no coffee. I mean, those poor guys, it's just that in itself is, is awful. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually looking into the story. I was, I was really quite surprised that, you know, and I didn't know this, that, that Taiwan has such a weak um, refugee policy that there's basically no uh, refugee laws. Um, yeah, weak. It doesn't I, have one, does it? Yeah. And... <laughs> Uh, which is surprising. I mean, um, Brian Brian Ho, who who is quite often in this program, he wrote a really good piece in New Bloom magazine just about what you know a missed opportunity that is for Taiwan because Taiwan really kind of promotes itself as this beacon of democracy and you know it's upholding human rights and it also demands that its own human rights are are upheld around the world, which is fair enough. But maybe you should lead by example as well. Um, and if these guys have been, they've been recognized by the United Nations. I mean, that's not nothing, right? So, you know, kind of, I'm sure the United Nations would not give them refugee status for no reason. So why all of this kind of, um, you know, delaying the procedure, saying, oh, we have to do our own background checks, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, you do. But at the same time, let's just be honest that there's also political reasons that are, that are holding back um, this kind of case. And it's not unprecedented. This has happened before in recent years where, you know, um, Chinese asylum seekers have come here and have just been rejected by Taiwan. And I, I don't really think that's that's the kind of it seems hypocritical to me. I mean, yes, to an extent, although the, the, the last one, as far as I know, Wang Yen was granted a a three-month entry permit when when she got here using the same tactic of buying a flight routed through Taiwan that that then goes on to China and then not getting on the connecting flight. Um, 
as I understand it, she her case was was accepted because she was supported by um, human rights NGOs in Taiwan who knew of her and knew who she was and went to the airport and facilitated the discussions with the immigration agency and the Mainland Affairs Council. The problem, as I understand it, with this case is that the NGOs in Taiwan aren't really sure who these these guys are and so are not playing that advocacy role that they played previously. Um, Taiwan Association for Human Rights uh, is, is in, involved, but also said, "Look, that's not really our responsibility. Um, you know, to, to act as advocates or guarantors of who these people are, it's an abdication of the government's responsibility because there is no proper process." Um, and and speaking to them yesterday, they also said that the these two men haven't really been given legal representation to help them present their case. So how? Because again, there's no process because uh, there's no law. There is a draft law that's sitting waiting for uh, amendments or approval that was drafted I think in 2016 and just hasn't been any movement on that since then so every time there's a case like this uh, it gets weighed down uh, in very complicated issues and and sort of bespoke negotiations this um, case is further complicated because uh, if they were they wouldn't send them back to China they would send them back to Thailand which is where they came from Um, and so the question is if you send them back to Thailand is Thailand then going to repatriate them to China, because while there is no referendum, sorry, no refugee law, uh, Taiwan has enshrined uh, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, which prevents you as a government from sending people back to um, uh, where you know they're going to be facing torture or persecution. So perhaps the question is then: if we send them back to Thailand, does Thailand then send them to China? In which case, we are, we have then broken. Taiwan domestic law and so it, I think it's quite complicated uh, but it is only complicated because there's this fudge uh, and the absence of uh, of a proper law I think it's also um, uh, I, the, the government just, we need to be honest about this that it's it's most likely for political reasons because these are politically sensitive cases and because they involve Chinese citizens and uh, you know the government likely does not want to rock the boat but the, you know the other the other thing that I find hypocritical is that people have come here and there's strong evidence to suggest that people have come here who are wanted in other jurisdictions who are actually wanted um, for criminal reasons um, and who have come to Taiwan because they can't be uh, deported from Taiwan. I'm not saying they're here now, but it has happened in the recent past. And so these are rich people who can afford to just come to Taiwan and they're just let in. And, you know, I, I find it very hard to believe that no one in the Taiwanese authorities knows that these people are here when Interpol's looking for them. And they are allowed to, to stay here and have some refuge for a while. And yet you've got people who are saying that they're being persecuted for human rights reasons and they're being left to languish at the airport there's just i think that's something that taiwan needs to take a long hard look at itself over and before we go today police in taipei are coming under fire for wasting taxpayers money after they nabbed a student for drinking her roommate's yogurt now the case has sparked anger after police not only spent time to check the pilfered plastic yogurt bottle for fingerprints but also carried out dna tests on five suspects as well as the person who reported the yogurt drink theft in the first place now according to reports law enforcement officials spent 18,000 nt dollars in total to carry out the dna tests and add that to man and woman hours spent chasing the thief it all added up to rather a hefty sum to catch someone who simply drank a 59 nt bottle of uni president yogurt and i believe it was the low fat 
low healthy no sugar version now the yogurt thief was unmasked following the dna tests and he's now been charged with theft but we seem to have two big problems here firstly the undergraduate student at the chinese cultural university who believed the police had nothing better to do than find the person who drank their damn yogurt and secondly the police themselves for actually taking the original report seriously enough to warrant a full investigation so if i drank your yogurt david would you nab me into the police mate uh (laughs) No, I think um, I think everybody involved in this case has to. As speaking of taking a long, hard look at um, themselves, should should do that exactly. Uh, it's. I mean, it's no wonder none of her um, roommates uh, owned up to this, given uh, what uh, what it looks like or sounds like. Um, this student is like because um, <laughs> you're probably terrified. Um, of what she might do to them um you know in terms of the police surely you just get all of those people in a room and give them a stern talking to and 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 somebody somebody will will own up um so along the lines of don't waste police time right something along the lines of that yeah um i mean again which i was thinking about this is surely that's an offense as well um so you get prosecuted twice once for theft and once for wasting police time um so i mean yeah uh you'd think you'd think just wiser heads should have reigned in this case you're, you're being um, very tactful you're being too tactful well, it's, what reply, is it yeah? it's 3000 NT per, per <laughs> DNA sample right so yeah, yeah. it was 20,000 NT so uh, yeah <laughs> yeah uh, somebody somebody should maybe be um, held reprimanded held re- reprimanded for uh, agreeing to do this in the first place rather than just telling them all to go away so Nicola if David drank your yoghurt from the fridge would you call the busies Oh my word, do not start me off on this story. I mean, like, how spoilt can she be? And she never lived in the real world. It's just like a rite of passage at university. Someone nicks your stuff from the fridge. You get over it, you learn in a grown up fashion to just or, or deal you, with or it. Or you steal their stuff back. Yeah, you honest. steal their stuff back. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, resort to childish tactics. But you don't go to the police. And the police, why did the police even, why did they tolerate this? I mean, why did they give it the time of day? And now her poor flatmate who drank the yogurt, maybe she had the munchies in the middle of the night or something. We don't know. Now she's got a criminal record, which is just, you know, over... Uh, what? How much was the yogurt? 59, 59 yeah. Too. It's just ridiculous. No, I think the... the the student who took that case to the police should actually be charged with something. Yeah. Be charged with wasting police time. Yeah. How, how, about, how about the student that dibbed a uh, roommate into the police has to buy everyone in Taipei that pays tax a bottle of 59 into yogurt? Yeah, to maybe maybe just to the the cost of you know the DNA test, she should buy like eighteen thousand worth of yogurts and then give them out free. At I think MRT that that, was, that would have been a fair thing to say, wouldn't it? Is uh, this test is going to cost twenty thousand NT? Is, do you want to pay for that, or would you yeah. rather just ask all of these people here to give you 50, like a bottle of yogurt? Bottle and, of yogurt, yeah. yeah, basically. And what about the policeman that signed off on it though? Because somebody of rank must have signed off on the DNA test, yeah. Yeah, I think he needs to go for retraining. How about five years on Penghu doing traffic duty? Extreme? <laughs> what, do, do people do traffic duty? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Penghu sure. is the best place, isn't it? I mean, just standing in the wet and the wind. I think, yeah, why not? That's my point. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And David Green. Thanks very much. And this was, in fact, our first all-British version of Taiwan this week. And if you didn't understand it because we were speaking English, well, sorry. Sorry, I do apologise. Anyway, don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android 
favourite podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. And I'm Gavin Phipps from ICRT. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.